It's another fantastic week of racing over here on the Naira circuit with races like the Grade 1 Sword Dancer and the Grade 1 Forgo highlighting this fantastic weekend of racing. And what better way to watch the races than with Naira bets? New members can sign up and get a $200 match deposit bonus using the promo code Rewind. Go sign up using NairaBets.com or the NairaBets app. Terms and conditions do apply. Welcome to episode 49 of Redboard Rewind. My name is Spencer Luganbeal, and today my special guest is one of the fantastic writers on TripNote Pros and a Southern California contest player, Tyler Hoffman. Me and Tyler go over three races from last Saturday's Del Mar Pacific Classic card, and some angles we go over are why Blinkers Off is a better overlaid angle than Blinkers On, and why watching races and taking notes can always improve your game and make you a much better player. This is Redboard Rewind. It's the same old story in this circle. We go back and forth. We go back and forth. Ain't good for me. Why we do this for? We go back and forth. Won't do this no more. Always have it solid. Always have it solid. And now I'd like to welcome in my special guest, Tyler Hoffman. Tyler, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Spencer. How are you? I'm hanging in there. Uh, PGA 2K21 just dropped last weekend, so I've been playing a lot of golf, not in real life, but just on the virtual range. Life is good. How was your weekend I'm, overall at Del Mar? Well, first of all, I'm glad to hear that. And this time of day, it's uh, such a weird time. We all got to find new activities to keep ourselves busy with half the world shut down. Oh, you so. have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> It's good you're keeping yourself occupied. Um, over here on the West Coast, it's uh, everything's going well. We had a, a real fun weekend with the Pacific Classic Betting Challenge and a lot of great racing both on Friday and Sunday also around that card. It was a very, very competitive weekend with a, a lot of different prices, I thought, mixed in with some logical winners and some very challenging races to, to go after and to, and to compete against in the tournament, specifically on Saturday. So I had a lot of fun. You know, it's, it's. I love that you say it's competitive racing. A lot of people, you know, you hear the, you know, the naysayers on Twitter, racing is dying. There's, you know, not enough competitive races. Oh, five-horse field this, five-horse field that. There's still eight other races on the card that you can be challenged with. Oh, well, I don't do maiden races. Okay, maybe we should find a different hobby then, if you can just have nothing good to say about the great cards out there in Southern <laughs> California. Exactly. I mean, it, it, everyone's going to be biased to their own circuit, and they think it's better than others. I mean, you'll hear East Coast players moan and groan about the West Coast field sizes and competitiveness, and you'll hear the West Coast players complain about the East Coast racing. You know, the Ortiz brothers win everything. Rosario lays the horse last and comes looping, and, you know, Chad Brown wins every turf race. I mean, everyone has their own inherent biases and whatnot, but I think at the end of the day, the the beautiful thing that we're at in this day and age of, of ADWs is – you can literally pick and choose whatever tracks and whatever types of races you want to play. You have multiple opportunities to go after something that you feel that is your strength, whether that be a maiden race, a grass race, a cheap claiming sprint, stakes races, whatever it is. You're not subject just to play the one card like, you know, the generations before us where they were had to play, you know, just Santa Anita if they were on the West Coast or just Belmont or Aqueduct. I mean, unless you were in Vegas back in the, the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, I mean, you couldn't, you were stuck. You had to. You had to play the card that was in front of you. Now we don't. We're not pigeonholed for that, and I think that's a big advantage. I think that makes it like for the professional players back in the day so much more amazing because they 
only had, you know, if it was a, if it was three days a week, it was 27, you know, 30 races. And they would sit for possibly, you know, 20, 22 of them and just play eight races. And I just I can't imagine people now having that type of patience. Everyone has to at least have that quick action bet, that quick exacta box just to, like, get the needle through for the next race. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. And then people wonder why their bankrolls deteriorate a lot faster than other people. Exactly. I mean, you talk about, you know, you always, you know, at least for me when I'm out with my buddies at track and they'll say, ah, we're going to pass this race. And then all of a sudden they're gone for a couple minutes. Like, oh, I had to tickle it. I just put, you know, the, the <laughs> six bucks or the 10 bucks. That's the new version of passing a race. It, it, that instant gratification as you alluded to. It, it's, it's like a like on Twitter or Facebook. Let me tell you. So for people who don't know who you are, just kind of give us your background. I know you're very, uh, you're one of the guys who does trip note pros with Benny South street. Just uh, what got you into racing and, you know, how has it culminated into where you are today? Yeah. So uh, for me, I've been in racing my entire life. My parents actually met at San Anita Park in 1981. So the first time I ever went to the track, I couldn't even hold my head up. I was probably four weeks old. I think it was <laughs> the Friday before the San Anita Derby back in 92. So horse racing goes generation before my parents. Um, grandparents on both sides were, were lovers of the sport. They actually were based in the Midwest. So Arlington park, uh, was probably ironically the first time my parents even met. They just didn't know it at the time. Cause they were probably five and six years old. So that's kind of how far back it goes. It's been a sport. I've always loved the handicapping aspect actually grew into as I got older when I was you know, a little kid going out to San Anita and Hollywood park and Del Mar was just following, you know, horses by, you know, their names. I have a, somewhat of a photographic memory when it comes to the sport. So I had my favorite horses growing up. Um, Kona gold was probably my favorite racehorse of all time. Bruce Headley and his family were kind enough to let me go to the barn area. Um, you know, every once in a while, I even come to his backyard in Arcadia, California and, and go. And I, I have a photo with myself and I have two younger brothers. So we were probably nine, seven, and five, somewhere around those ages. And Bruce let all three of us ride Kona bareback and, you know, took photos and, watch us around the backyard and stuff. It was a really, really cool experience. And that's part of where my love from racing grew, um, was just the, the backside stories and just rooting for individual horses. My favorite jockey was Alex Elise, obviously rode Kona gold. So that's kind of where that love came from. Um, as I got older, I got more into handicapping. My dad taught me, you know, the, the foundation of handicapping principles or we looking at speed, um, trip handicapping that plays into what you just alluded to with my work at trip note pros. Um, so I started handicapping probably around the age of 10 or 11. I, let's just say, hopefully my mom's not listening. Uh, <laughs> in school, I'd have a racing form buried beneath my, you know, my school books and I'd be handicapping back in the classroom, you know, getting a little head start on the weekend and stuff. So I was always a horse racing nerd all the way through. And it's my love for the sports only grown from there. And I've now got into the, the contest circuit, which, uh, is probably where most people know me from is San Nita had a online free tournament. That started in the late 2000s. It was called Showviver. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. I've heard of it, yep. Yeah, so basic principle of it is you pick one horse before the day starts, has to run first, second, or third, and if you do, you survive the next day. Very simple logical principle. It's, you know, everybody signs up for it. Most of the time, people get knocked out because they forget to make a pick. I mean, it's, it's a crapshoot. Mm-hmm. And my dad and I signed up for it when I was 18 because it was the first contest I was eligible for, and we were just goofing around playing against each other. And long story short, I ended up winning the contest. I think I beat out about 3,000 people, and I sent home, I think, about $3,000. And that was kind of my first contest win. And kind of how people started to 
to recognize who I was and that I was a young person in the sport and that I had a, obviously a love and a passion for it. And it's just blossomed from there. I love that you brought up the, uh, the contest aspect as well. You know, we can go back to talking about how people want to play every race. Contests are such a good way to do that because you can play, you know, stable duel now for five bucks. You can do derby wars for however much you can do qualifiers on horse tourneys. And in that way, you still have to play every race. You can't really skip. So when I hear a lot of people say, you know, oh, I'm only going to play three races today, but I need more action. Like, well, there's other tracks, but I'm still playing. The, the fact that contests haven't blown up as much as I think they should have over the last couple of years, like we're growing consistently, but I thought for sure that we might have seen an even bigger spike in it. I don't know about your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's had an exponential growth with each past year. It, it grows with popularity, and it's a great way to get new fans into the sport mm-hmm. because – as we all know, the racetrack is expensive. I mean, more times than not, you're going to lose when you go out there. It's not about being right in every single race. It's about making sure you cash proportionally to your opinion on the card. You know, you can win, you can lose nine out of 10 races, but that one race you hit, if you hit it the right way, that makes you a winner for the whole day. And that's a tough concept mentally for new fans, I think, to get into. And so the contest world gives you an aspect, especially and like you alluded to on stable duel and, and Derby wars. And even on horse tourneys, they have, you know, those $8 jackpot feeders and, you know, things of that nature. It's a real, it's a limited bankroll that you can go into. You can have fun with it. You get action every race. It's entertainment. Cause at the end of the day, that's really what our sport is. Um, and I think it's a great way to, to grow the sport. And I think it'll continue to grow. I, I, I kind of have a feeling that it's the next evolution in our sport. As we get our ADWs to line up more with, the tournament websites, I think, is kind of where we're going. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think we'll, we'll see the next, you know, jump up that, that you're alluding to. Also talking with, you know, beginning handicapping, handicapping back of the classroom, I was kind of the same way. I would bring in a racing form. Uh, actually, it was the principal who actually knew what it was and says, give me that. He took it away from me the first day. He goes, don't let me see you again with this the next. The very next day, I brought the very next copy. And he goes, all right, so I'm not going to tell your parents, but me and you both know what this is, but nobody else does. Let's keep it that way. I said, yes, sir. (laughs) And one of the best – go ahead. No, 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 continue. I was going to say one of the best things in all the handicapping books is uh, Brad Free's book, and he explains how he would – he had a little writing desk in the corner of his room, and he would get home Friday, and he'd have the racing form, and he'd go just – you know, he did three races, like, you know, in an hour, but he was exhausted afterwards because he was so new to it and just going through all the data – and that's the hardest thing with being a new fan. It's just there's so much data to dig through. There, there is. The learning curve is immense. And there's, I wish there was an easy way around it. Unfortunately, it's, you, just like anything else, you, you learn more by participating and, and being involved with it. And that's kind of one of the unique aspects, I think, of the company, uh, Benny South Street's Trip Note Pros, mm-hmm. that we're trying to help out not only serious horse players, but new horse players as well. Because one of those aspects that takes so long to do in your handicapping is race replays, doing trip notes. And what our service provides is we're watching the last race of every horse as long as they're not coming off an extended layoff or um, have at least run on the surface, you know, in recent form. And we're just providing our analysis on trip notes, focusing on two major aspects, horse comfort and jockey intent. And the subtleties that can be picked up that a more experienced, handicapper uh video play watcher can pick up on and the nuances of jockey styles their riding styles i should say um the way a horse is running 
subtle troubled trips that aren't noted in the form, which happens all the time. And when we go through a couple of races from the Pacific Classic card, I'll, I'll point out some of the things that, that we spotted. Those are kind of the things, the shortcuts that I think will help grow the game and help grow new players because it's something that they don't have to do. They can just go to a product that's already developed and it's just as simple as reading the information. And I think that'll be really, really helpful as, as time grows on and our sport continues to, to hopefully grow. For me, I do have, you know, a pretty busy week working a job, having the Daily Gallup website, podcast. I'm doing a couple other side gigs for Pete right now. And for me, watching races and taking notes has always been the, my downfall, I would say, even, because I just I don't have a photographic memory. So for me, it would almost be like I have to watch the race six, seven, eight, nine times to even get like the clear basic notes down, let alone what you guys get down on your site. So I've been going through your site the last couple of days. It is by far, people say formulator is the best thing in racing. This could be, first of all, 1A and 1 combined because what I've been doing is for Del Mar to get ready for this podcast and this week, I've been taking all the notes from the last couple of weeks and just putting them into formulator and just making sure that I have basic notes ready and obviously, we'll talk about a race that you guys had given out on Saturday. It was in the 11th, and it was a pretty darn good trip note when we get to it later in the program. Well, first off, thank you so much, because it, it means a lot. It, the trip notes, it, it's, it's a labor of love. It's obviously incredibly time-consuming, and I know exactly what you mean with having a, you know, a, a normal daytime job on top of having you know, obviously this, your podcast is something that you love, and it's, it's your baby, and it's, it's been your project. And to be able to dedicate you know, to split yourself and to dedicate yourself into, into two different occupations is obviously a challenge. But I think one of the most important things that all of us have in common in the horse racing industry is that we all have a love for the sport and for the game. And yes, we come from it from different viewpoints and vantage points. Some people love um, watching morning workouts, let's say. Others love the camaraderie at the racetrack. That's where they're, you know, the social scene that's there. Others love just the handicapping of it. Others love the gambling. And no matter what it is, we can all respect it and we can all love and appreciate different aspects. And that's what makes our sport, I think, so great. And for me personally, trip note handicapping is what that is. I love watching race replays. I love being able to decipher and find that hidden information um, and spotting it. And I, I think my partner, Benny South Street, is, um, I think he's the best in the business at it. He's got a, an eye that you know, one day I hope, I hope one day I'm half as good as what he is when he looks at, at race replays mm -hmm. and, and what he can spot with, with everything. And, uh, there's so much more to, to, to learn and grow. And I think I can speak for both of us when I say we're incredibly excited about where this product is going, um, what it'll look like in the next six months to a year, um, the database that we're going to be forming with it. Um, one of the new features on our, our website is going to be that there's going to the end user is going to have the ability to look back on every trip note we've ever written for a horse. So let's say six months from now, you're going to have four or five trip notes um, on a horse. And you can see that horse's progression. You could probably pick up on patterns. Um, for instance, there was a horse that ran yesterday called Mountain Pass. Mountain Pass on a tape, if you just watch one individual tape, he runs the same type of race every single time. He's a perennial maiden claimer. And he breaks slow. He kind of looms up in the lane, flattens out, and he has a giant gallop out. And every time you're thinking, man, you know, that gallop out was pretty good. I, you know, maybe <laughs> there's more there because he's always a big pump. Well, he always gallops out well. It's his favorite part of the race, it looks like, from the finish line That's to the 7-8 pole is what he excels at. Unfortunately, the race is run from the three-quarter pole to the wire, and he doesn't seem to want to do any running from there. 
Um, so yeah, those are the things, the subtleties, that's where the product's going to grow and the evolution's going to come in. And that's where I think it's going to be an even better product. Um, the further along we get. So you are a trip handicapper by trade. Obviously I like to call that like the fifth, uh, pillar of, of handicapping, obviously pace, speed, class, and form are the other main four. What would you consider as like your second, uh, pillar of I handicapping? Actually, I would, I would actually call trip handicapping probably my one a, Mm-hmm. Um, pillar. My my number one pillar uh, is speed handicapping, so pace. Okay. My father my father is a great speed handicapper, and from as early as I can remember, we we've always talked about when analyzing a race, setting up the pace. Who's going to be in front? You know, at the quarter pole. Who's going to have the, the lead at the half mile pole? What is the pace going to look like? Coming for home, what what are we seeing here? Are we do we think that these speed horses can continue on? Are we looking for somebody to come from just off? You know, is there going to be a pace meltdown? Things of that nature. And on top of that, we're also specifically, I mean, because we're speed handicappers. If every race went wire to wire, we'd be the richest people in the world because that's typically what we lean on. <laughs> there's there's probably nothing that insults us more when somebody goes wire to wire. We didn't have it. We both kind of look at each other and go, which one of us screwed up there? So one of us was supposed to spot that and we missed it. Um, so that, that would be my, my number one pillar. So I, I'd say it's pace handicapping as well as, as trip handicapping. The, the other pillar you mentioned that, that's always really interesting to me in, in talking with, with all of these talented handicappers, especially on the contest circuit and the way different handicappers approach their own um, mythology, is class. The one thing about pace handicapping, in my opinion, is sometimes class doesn't play as big a factor in it. For instance, you have a lone front runner, and they're clear by two, you know, two and a half lengths. They don't know who's behind them. Mm-hmm. They don't know that Zenyatta's trying to run them down. All they know is they're free, they're relaxed, and they're comfortable. And that's why, that's why you, sometimes you'll see upsets, um, I think specifically on the front end in races, and everyone scratches their head going, well, well what happened there? You know, he didn't have the class to, to go there. He didn't, but he had the pace. And that's half the battle. That's, and that's, on the, the converse side of that is you look at a speed horse where the jockey wrangles him back and holds a tight you know, half-length lead. So... Uh, I think Matt Bernier yesterday on Twitter brought up a great point between Mean Mary and Rushing Fall mm-hmm. and said, if Mean Mary is allowed to race two lengths in front of Rushing Fall, does she get caught on the wire or worn down in the last 16? That's a great question. And that's the battle, I think, between pace handicappers and class handicappers. Because you let that classier mare or horse stay on the flank of the speed horse and they get worn down late. They take away their biggest advantage, which is their speed. The classy mare stays closer, or colt, whatever the, the, the type of horse mm-hmm. it is, um, stays closer and wears it down because of its class. And so that's always, I think, the, a unique battle when you, you know, you're looking at different types of handicapping principles and styles. I think pace for a lot of people is one of the hardest pillars to get to because, like you said, most of the upsets, it's either the lone pace setter that no one thought would go or the three other speeds get wrangled back and this 20-to-1 shot never comes back. Or it's the three favorites that go out and just duel on the lead until their heads are going to explode, and here comes, you know, a horse that's one paced every single race, but it's good enough to get the job done at forty-five to one in this race. For me, I am definitely much more of a class handicapper. I love going back, digging through result charts. Who did this horse beat? What was the buyer par? What horses are coming into the race? I've always loved that analytical style of it. For for you as well, what type of angles are you? do you like to look for when looking through the card? So I'd say there's a couple. Um, 
one of the most famous, I think, handicapping principles is, is a form cycle. Mm-hmm. So what that means is you'll have a horse coming off a layoff. And let's say the first race off the layoff, they run a nice, even race. Um, typically, we like to see them hit the board. So let's say runs third. The next race, so the second race off the layoff, is typically an effort where they, uh, they might bounce or not run quite as well. So they might have an, an off-the-board finish. The third race off the layoff is the form cycle. So that's where you think at that point the connections have kind of trained up this horse. You know, maybe the first race was just kind of the even, let's see what we've got off the, off the bench. The second race was let's try something with them, you know, maybe pump a little speed. Maybe we, we sit back and we just try to run down late. You know, one of those things where it just didn't find it, kind of work out. The third race in that form cycle is where they're, you know, they're, they're ready. They're, they're peaked to run their best race off the layoff. So I say that's, that's one of the, my probably my favorite handicapping angles, Matt. That's one that I've learned from my dad. My dad learned it from his dad. His dad probably learned it from his dad. I mean, that, that angle is probably going back, you know, 40, 50 years at this point. Um, and it's been very, very profitable over the years. I'd say in terms of speed handicapping or pace handicapping, anytime you have a front runner that doesn't have a finish or seems to be lacking finish and they remove the blinkers, that also is probably one of my favorite angles because when the when the horse takes the blinkers off, it just seems to relax a little bit more on the front end. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to go wire to wire in the race. They might actually lay off the pace uh, and then come back on. And, and the best example I can think of that, or most recent example, is there was a horse that ran opening day called Ostini. Or, I'm sorry, opening weekend at Dunmore. It was on a Sunday, July 12th. And you can go back in, in the form and look at it. Ostini was a front runner that hadn't finished the deal in a long time. We'll say nine or 10 consecutive races and Ostini removed the blinkers. And the trip note that we had that day on Ostini was consistently locked in eyeball duels, but showed fight. You know, we mm-hmm. liked the, the fact that the trainer intentions or the connection intentions that day were, you know, removing the blinkers makes sense to try to help with the finish. And that's exactly what happened. The jockey, Drayden Van Dyke, took Ostini off the pace. Actually, it was last. Uh, and closed like a rocket ship to get up to win, I think, about 13 to 1. And everyone, after the race, there was a lot of chatter on Twitter going, you know, where did that race come from? How did that horse go off the pace and stuff? It was a very simple handicapping principle combined with trip note handicapping. The trip notes told us that, you know, this one had lacked finish, but had, had you know, guts to him. He just needed something to, to help wake him up, something to help him relax. The key was the blinkers coming off, and with a nice profitable angle at 13 to 1. So I'd say those two are probably two of my favorite handicapping uh, angles that I look for in the form. I love that you brought up Blinkers Off because uh, Barry Meadows' new book, The Skeptical Handicapper, he kind of brings up the point of that. For me, I was like, oh, Blinkers ah. On. It's, you know, it's, a, it's a good move. They're trying to get the horse you know, to you know, relax and not be able to be so fractious up front. And he goes, really, when you think about it, the Blinkers On is trying to fix a problem. Blinkers Off means problem has been fixed. And so now I'm a lot more looking forward to seeing blinkers coming off than blinkers on for that exact reason. Eyeball duel doesn't want to give it up, but it can show that fight. And then people, when they see blinkers on, I still feel like it almost it helps bring the market price down, whereas blinkers off, people aren't really so sure. Like, did the problem get fixed? Do they just did not like the blinkers anymore? And that's where you get your prices, like you said, at 13 to 1. And, and I that's a great observation and a great point because the – the other side of that argument is when you're looking at the pace handicap and people are unsure what the blinkers off are going to do. So when they're trying to figure out the pace, now they don't know if they can count on that horse to go out there and duel with someone 
Or is the blinkers off going to make that horse faster because it's going to it just wants to get to the front and relax? Or does it come off and now you have a, a completely different pace scenario developing on the front end? And I think that's why you see a lot more overlays. People almost always seem to associate blinkers on with speed, mm-hmm. and which isn't always the case. It can also be focus. And deciphering between the two can be really, really tricky. Um, but I think people tend to bet blinkers on horses a lot more because of their thinking pace handicapping and their thinking speed, even though that's not always what it's meant to be. The blinkers off creates a little bit of ambiguity, as you alluded to. And that's where it's been a lot of fun over the years, especially for, uh, for me to bet. I can't wish we continue more on this conversation, but we got three races to look through. Let's get started right now with race number seven from Del Mar from this past Saturday. It was the grade two Del Mar handicap going one and three eighths miles. On the turf course, it's obviously the return of United going off at 8-5. to five. Flavian Pratt in the saddle just as always seems like an underlay to me. The thing that was interesting with this favorite was has won its last three, but by a combined one length. So this horse needs every bit of the wire when he gets to it. He certainly does. Um, we Our trip note was that he's honest as the day is long. Um, and his last race, which is the Eddie Reed, which was his, you can call it, I guess, his prep race, uh, at the beginning of the meet on July 26th, you know, he stalked the pace that our Neptune stormed throughout, challenged him on the far turn, and he gamely wore him down while just holding off Sharp Samurai, who ran, by the way, terrific mm-hmm. in the Pacific Classic. Uh, United is one of those horses that I think because of his margins of victory are always so small. I mean, five of his six wins have come by less than two lengths. He almost always wins by half length or a length, so you never have confidence that he's going to blow a field away. But he just shows a ton of fight, and the Delmar handicap was no different. It was just unlucky, the trip that he got. Um, he was one that figured he's probably as safe a bet as you could have found in that race, that he was going to be part of the exactors. He knew he was going to be there. Mm-hmm. But at some point, you had to figure the trip wasn't going to quite work out for him. At some point, he was going to be a little bit unlucky, and that's what happened in that race. Um, going through just basic handicapping of it with trip notes, there really was only one really, really good trip note horse to play in the race, and that was the winner, Red King. Uh, I've had an opportunity to watch tape on Red King the last two starts, both the the option claiming 40 on May 24th and the San Juan Capistrano victory. And the thing that made Red King such a good trip note play was that he was incredibly sharp. He's one of the few horses outside of United coming into this race that was, you know, coming to a race and improving and getting better with each start. Mm -hmm. Um, The San Juan Capistrano trip that we had was that he sat in mid-pack very comfortably. He moved up without having to be asked around the far turn, and he took over with his ears up. Again, that alludes to the horse comfort, which is something we're always looking for at, at Trip No Pros, um, and was just very, very sharp. I mean, on the gallop, nobody even came close to him. And while this was a class test, when you look at somebody like that and you're looking for a sharp performer that's got a, you know, a nice kick like Red King does, uh, that was something that 8 to 1 in the morning line was really, really juicy. Then you factor in the, the Raspoli factor and the fact that he got off three or four different horses in here to stay with Red King, and he right now is red-hot at Delmar. That made for a really fun bet in that race. It's interesting when you look at this horse as well because, like you said, an improving horse. The one thing that kind of had me you know, teetering on either side was that you know, the 0 for 8 at Delmar, 0 for 6 at the distance, but he likes to hit the board. So I thought that this might be a horse that's improving, still had the class test against United to deal with, and the fact that just didn't know how to get it done yet at the distance or surface, but definitely a, a possible use underneath. Were there any other horses in here other than those two that you were looking at to, like, spice up plays underneath at that point? Well, 
I was since I was playing the, the tournament, and I'll, I don't mind sharing what my my thought process was mm-hmm. going into this race. Obviously, with United being one to two in the race and figuring that he was going to get first run on Red King no matter what, it was pretty logical that it was going to be pretty chalky. Um, Red King was obviously bet very very strong on the board, so it made it seem like those two were going to run one two, maybe an outside chance that Red King could beat Originaire. But what, you know, something would have to happen for that to happen, and it did. <laughs> and we'll talk about that in a second. The other trip note horses in the race actually came from the outside. Um, they were number nine, Oscar Dominguez, and number 10, Originaire. And Originaire is actually the one who ran second. Mm-hmm. We'll go through Oscar Dominguez first. His race uh, up at Keeneland was one that was wide, wide, and wider. He was completely uncovered. He was only racing three wide. And this is where a lot of times in, in trip handicapping, people will look at the tape and go, oh, he was three wide. It's not that big a deal. You have to watch the head-on replay. He was three wide, but he was six deep. For mm. basically the entire stretch run the first time through, he was still six deep on the back stretch. And coming off the far turn, he must have been 10 deep, maybe 11. I mean, he was practically off the screen. And he still closed in 22 and four-fifths the final quarter. So looking again, handicapping and trip notes going hand in hand together. Oscar Mingus figured, um, you know, that he would also be coming to a race and, and be running, you know, running late to to pick up one of the minor prizes in there. Originaire, same idea. Originaire came out of that common race with United on July 26th, and he was in an uncomfortable spot throughout. He was constantly between horses. Um, again, horse comfort wise, never seemed truly comfortable in there. Um, he tried hard all the way to the wire, but he never got into the clear until very late in the game. And even though Rispoli left him to go to Red King, which is what validated Red King's form even more, the fact that, that he had kind of that an excuse of a trip, we'll say, also made him a player in there. So the thought process from a betting standpoint for me in, in the contest was to play trifectas in the race, Keen, Red King, and United in the first and second holes, and Oscar Dominguez and Originaire in the third hole. So that was pretty much all I saw in the race. The rest of the field pretty much looked like, you know, they were outclassed in here. Um, and in particular, most of them didn't even look like they were in good form, I thought. For me, I was going to try and play against United in the race. If he beats me, he beats me. But obviously he's been going off favor and doing and winning races. I just thought winning the last three by a length total, and I, I get it. The thing that made uh, Red King so interesting was, Usually, you only see turf races. You know, they win by a length. They win by half a length. To blow a field out by four is something that I think you see maybe once a week, once every two weeks. It just seemed like such a big blowout. The horse I ended up on was the outside horse, Originaire. I didn't know if this horse was declining or maybe going to stay the same. Had the win at Delmar. Had never been this distance. But I just thought the five by two and a half. That race was all right, and he already had the two double-digit buyers behind it. This is one that I thought stacked up well. And if a horse like Red King, like I said, couldn't find the distance or just still with Delmar wasn't a fan and coming off that layoff, it could be interesting. I could get a decent price, which I did at 10 to 1. He did it, and he ran great. I mean, he lost his race by, what, three-quarters of a length of length mm-hmm. and, he was, and was flying late. His Charlie Wittenham race was terrific when he only lost to United by a half length. Um, and the Chad Brown invader rock emperor. And that was one of those races where, you know, I rod got DQ'd on rock emperor for, for pulling the, you know, the typical or brother move where they come <laughs> off the far turn. And they they whip right-handed and they, uh, you know, they try to, to you know shoot off the turn there and kind of pinch everybody off, 
off inside of him. And Rispoli hung in there tough. I got to give him credit. That was, that was an education there with, with East Coast Riders. And I, I thought Originator showed a lot of guts that day. Um, and then last time, obviously, with, with, with the trip note that we had, that he was just kind of in an uncomfortable spot throughout, never got into the clear sailing, you know, going to, you know, the extra half a furlong to, to three eighths of a mile and three eighths today, or on Saturday, I should say, uh, made a lot of sense. And that, was, that was a very, very good pick. And when you're looking to beat United, there are really only a couple horses in there. Obviously, Red King, Originaire, and, and then uh, Oscar Dominguez was the other one. But he's another one in here. I guess why I didn't like him on top, or I didn't like him anywhere near as much as Red King, is he was also over six of the distance mm-hmm. and was also very camera shy at Delmar. He only had a one for 10 record um, and just seemed to be, you know, he was going to be further back. No matter how the race was going to be run, Red King was going to be in front of Originaire and Oscar Dominguez. And I think that's why, in my handicap, and I elevated him a little bit more than the other two, um, along with the, the reason stated earlier, just that he was in very, very sharp form. Let's listen back to the call with Larry Coleman. It's Red King takes down the grade two Delmar handicap right now. They're off in the Delmar handicap. United broke well from the inside. Combatant is there. Big Buzz is going to go up and grab the lead from them. And on the far outside, it's North County Guy. Break of two back to Warden Jerry, who sits back in fifth in the early stages with New Year to the outside. And then comes another mystery who's down toward the rail. Red King is seven lengths off the lead. Originaire and Proud Pedro are next. And Oscar Dominguez is the early trailer. So they come into the stretch for the first time. And it's Big Buzz on the inside and North County Guy. These two are stride for stride. Combatant is just to the outside of them. United in behind horses, sits on the rail in fourth, just two and a half lengths off the lead. Then it's Ward and Jerry who's going up on the far outside. Followed by New Year, another mystery is after that. Break of another three back to Red King. Proud Pedro is next. And then comes Originaire, and Oscar Dominguez is last through a 25.07 opening quarter mile as Big Buzz takes them into the turn in front. North County Guy continues to prompt the pace. Ward and Jerry is there on the outside. Combatant is fifth on the outside of ground-saving United, who's just four lengths off the lead as they head to the backstretch. New Year is next on the outside, then another mystery, followed by Red King. Break of another three back to Proud Pedro, Originaire is next, and Oscar Dominguez, 49.94, was the half mile as they head up the backstretch. Warden Jerry goes on with it now, takes the lead on the outside. Big Buzz back into second on the rail. North County Guy still right there in third. United and Combatant are together. Red King's moving now. Red King with an early blitz as they race for the far turn. He's moving for the front, and he's moving for the front right now on the far turn. Red King and North County Guy, these two have taken over the lead, and now Flavian Pratt brings United to the outside. He's just a length and a half behind as they come to the top of the stretch. Red King on the outside is the leader. North County Guy tries to go with him. United is third on the outside, but he still has to get to Red King with one furlong to run. Red King in front. United on the outside still has not gotten to him. Red King, United, late move, rigid air. Red King to the Breeders' Cup. And the number seven, Red King, gets it done, paying 10.60 with a 98 buyer. I don't think it's the, how much it paid or the buyer number. It's that fantastic ride by Umberto Raspoli. Wow, just taking it to United on the backstretch. That was a terrific move by Umberto. And the winning move and an aggressive one that certainly paid off. And that's why he's in my opinion, the best turf rider in the country right now. It's interesting. I did some deep digging after the race because I, I have I, my original when I started in racing – 
I was writing for Scott Shapiro's website, and I was doing Santania, so I knew a lot of the riders and stuff. Now, most mainly focusing now on the East Coast stuff, I haven't had time to dig into Santania and Del Mar as much anymore. Raspoli has 21 wins to Pratt's 11 on the turf, and everyone just screams over the moon on how good Pratt is. And I was stunned that the number was that much of a difference. And I think after the weekend now, Raspoli has a one-win lead over Pratt in the jockey standings as well. Yeah, he does. I, I haven't actually had a chance to look at the updated standings. I typically get that from get the update from John Lindo. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they're 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 gonna they're gonna finish one two. Raspoli obviously on the on the turf, I think is probably a little bit better than than Flavian is. Not that that's a knock on Flavian. Mm-hmm. The main track is the difference. That's where Flavian I think has the advantage. Uh, Raspoli's still learning how to how to I think ride on this circuit on the main track. Not that he's not more than capable of it. Um, that's a really weak knock, but what makes Umberto so good on the turf course is not only can he relax a front runner and seems to always have something left, no matter how fast they're going up front early. It's that when he has something that comes from off the pace, he always seems to be in the right spot, specifically that pocket trip. And for those of you unfamiliar with that term, that means that he's sitting just in behind the leader with an outside horse kind of hemming him into the rail. So he's typically sitting third or fourth and Umberto sits there saving every inch of ground, and he seems to know the exact right time to angle out or tip out as they're passing the quarter pole, um, you know, and coming off that far turn to put his mount in a position to win. So he's constantly getting first run on all of the deep closers while immediately challenging the speed horses who are trying to sneak away. It's a brilliant tactic if you can do it and if you can time it right. And his timing right now is really, really good. And that, I think, is what is creating so much success for him on the on the turf course. Another note that I found interesting, uh, Philip Diamato, this is, he's won seven of the last eight of, of this race. And I remember from, like I said, starting up a couple of years ago, this was when Diamato was like 20% and just one of the leading guys out there. It, when you see that type of note, I wish I had seen it beforehand as well in adding with the trip note as well. I, I think that some trainers, they just, they know how to win certain graded stakes or just certain claiming trainers know how to claim a horse and what level to bump it up to every time they kind of get the idea of what the horse is and it seems like he has a really good idea on what he needs from his horses in these types of races absolutely and when when you look at philip diamato's lineage you know his his horse racing background i mean he works right underneath the late great mike mitchell Mm -hmm. and how many times did mike mitchell win these marathon grass races (laughs) they seem like he won the san juan capistrano every single year and he, you know, he, he found a way to, to find a high price claiming horse, you know, a 50,000, 62,5, and he'd claim it, you know, maybe put one little prep in it. And then they go to the San Juan Capistrano and they'd run a great race. And all of a sudden they'd be on the, you know, the, the grade two circuit of, of turf marathon racing, you know, for the rest of their careers. And I think obviously Philip learned the, uh, the tricks of the trade, we'll say. And he's become very, very good at it. And I think he's actually probably one of the better turf, one of the more underrated turf trainers on our circuit one more thing before we jump into the next race the top four betting selections not in the correct order but the top four in general they were all in the top four it kind of alludes to what you said earlier how a lot of the horses seem to be out of form or just didn't seem like they were outclassed when you see a race like this and you go back and you're doing your notes for it do you kind of make the note that the public kind of knew what they were looking at in this race and it seemed like a pretty formful race and there wasn't anything that really jumped off the page at you Sometimes I think it depends on the race. So something like this race where everybody in the horse racing community knows United. Yep. 
So it, it, it's kind of, you know, typically we'll, we'll have a, a race note that'll say, you know, top two betting choices ran one, two, or they ran one, two, three, something like that. Probably doesn't need to be, say it, be stated as much in a graded stakes race because those are kind of the more popular horses. Mm-hmm. Um, so not probably not as much, I'd say. With that, let's jump over to race number nine from Del Mar this past Saturday. It was the grade one Del Mar Oaks going a mile and eighth. Another turf route for us. What were your thoughts going into this one, Tyler? I thought this was the most competitive race on the entire card. And what made it so challenging was the fact that there were two uh, invaders having their first North American starts. And not only that, those were the two horses that Flavion Pratt and Umberto Raspoli went to in the mm-hmm. race. So number three, Miss Extra for Mandela is where Umberto went. And number eight, Maze Vance. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, <laughs> is, where, is where Flavion went. And there wasn't a whole lot of information. I couldn't really find any tapes of their previous races over in Europe, or I think in France, rather. Uh, after that, Laura's Light, the favorite, who I believe I'm a favorite, 8-5, to five, my memory serves correctly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, was certainly in sharp form going into the race, but there was a question on distance. And... There was a couple different ways to look at it from a trip handicapping standpoint, but it was a very, very competitive and tough race to set up. Mostly because you didn't, you had those unknowns of the Europeans. And anytime you have that, it's hard to set up the pace to know, are they you know, going to go out to the front? Are they going to lay way back? You know, what are you going to do with that? So that's kind of where, you know, my analysis started in that race. Like you said, with the Europeans, for me, I usually want to see one or two graded wins before I think that they can match up over here. Whereas, like, if these horses were showing up in an allowance race, usually the one graded stake winner, you know, a solid showing in, like, a group one would be good enough. A couple interesting thoughts for me. The number four, Warren Showtime, who ran behind Laura's Light last time out, just seemed to me one that, for me, was stagnant, slowly declining, or maybe just going to be that, you know, solid mid-80 buyer horse. I thought it was really, really weird when you see someone like Mike Smith jump on this horse because the horse wasn't really improving. Why would Mike jump on this horse? What were your overall thoughts when you saw Mike Smith on the horse over the uh, journeyman Belize? So a couple things there. The the first observation is, and this is without any predetermined bias from the way Mike Smith's been riding this Del Mar meet, <laughs> yeah. is that that's a heck of a jockey switch. Yes. And something to, to, to pay attention to certainly and caught my eye, especially with the uh, – I did look at workout reports that day, and Warren Showtime had a couple of terrific uh, B&B plus workouts coming into the race. With that being said, I love Mike Smith. I really do. I've, I've, <laughs> I fell in love with him riding Zenyatta like I think most fans did. Unfortunately, I, and I saw this on Twitter and I thought it was hysterical. Uh, I can't even remember who, who typed it. I want to say it was maybe Jeremy Ballant called him uh, Middle Move Mike, <laughs> yeah. which is what he's been doing the entire Delmar meet with these backstretch blitzes. And that certainly concerned me with a horse like Warren Showtime messing up the pace because she has some tactical pace to her. Mm-hmm. but her best running style is to sit off and to make one move. And so I was very cautious when looking at Warren Showtime. With that being said, her tape from July 25th, while it was very, very good, um, I'll, I'll just read you what our trip note was in that race. We said was herded by a rival and bumped outwards going into the first turn, found a cozy rail trip down the backstretch while on the inside of number 11, Giddy. They both exited the same race. And this is where I had a hard time liking Warren Showtime more than I like Giddy. Uh, the jock that was on 
uh, Warren Showtime had a notion to get off the rail past the half mile pole, but ended up sticking to the rail. And that ended up being a terrific decision because she was, she caught a wide open seam from the three eighths pole all the way to the wire. She finished up really well while trying hard um, all the way through. She never got into any traffic. She cut the corner. It was a beautiful, beautiful trip. Conversely, when you go to Giddy's trip, Giddy was racing on the outside of Warren Showtime down the backstretch. And Giddy ended up having to take the overland route. And when I say overland, I mean she was five, six, seven wide all the way around the far turn and into the stretch. And she still outfinished Warren Showtime to the wire. So just by simple trip note handicapping, those two performances. Warren Showtime saved every inch of ground and got everything her own way. Mm-hmm. Giddy ran, let's call it an extra 16th of a mile based on that overland trip for, for argument's sake. How can one justify taking a shorter price on Warren Showtime versus Giddy? So I think they went off maybe 7-1, 8-1, and 5-1, and something like that. I could be wrong on the, on the final morning lines, but at least morning line-wise, Giddy was higher. And so that's where I kind of got off Warren Showtime. I was more focused on Giddy and my own uh, trip note analysis. One other question. Uh, Peter Miller had the favorite in here. Obviously, he also had the 15-1 to 1 California Cook. Obviously, Peter Miller, there's, you know, everyone has an opinion on Peter Miller at this point in time. May, whatever it's going on. <laughs> whatever's going on is going on. Obviously, when you bump up horses 30 points and buyers, I don't, you don't need a scientist and a, an investigation at this point, I don't think. When you see that, a lot of times you know you'll hear, "Oh, Chad Brown has two or three in a turf race, and it's always the other Chad that wins." Is it kind of the same way with Peter Miller, or is there is there a pretty distinct idea of who he likes in the race? I'd say when it's a non-stakes race, certainly that plays a factor. Mm-hmm. In a stakes race, in this particular instance, I didn't really think that California Cook had much of a shot in here, only because I thought that she was outclassed. Mm-hmm. She, the one horse Carpe Venum and the seven Red Lark all came out of the same race. They all actually ended up having identical trips in the race. Carpe Venum won that common option of claiming 89 winners the one other than on July 12th, uh, defeating California Cook who ran second and number seven Red Lark ran third. The difference was Carpe Venum sat the pocket trip, which is Umberto's patented move, even though uh, Cedillo wrote it, and tipped out. California Cook was caught behind and trying to run down Carpe Venum, and Red Lark was stuck behind Carpe Venum and California Cook and got third run coming for home. The, the margin of defeat at the wire was the same as what it was at the top of the stretch. Nobody lost any ground. Nobody could gain any ground, though. It was just whoever moved first won, whoever moved second ran second, whoever moved third ran third. So it was really difficult to separate all three of those horses, though. They all seemed outclassed, um, you know, jumping up from that race to, obviously, this the grade one Delmar Oaks. So I thought they were all behind Laura's light. The, the biggest question for the favorite in the race was the distance because when she won that race, when Laura's light won the race at Sanita at a mile and an eighth, uh, in the, uh, where is it? The honeymoon, the grade three yeah. honeymoon. Uh, that was a brilliant ride by able to deal that day. She let parkour, the number nine set a fake fast pace, which is basically just means a, you know, a runoff leader mm-hmm. and just stock from second. Abel moved at the perfect time to go take parkour on the far turn. He opened up at the right time and he just did hang on, you know, by a diminishing neck, you know, on the wire over, uh, the Caracavo or, uh, yeah, over Celestar and Caracavo in that race. And so while 
the tactic and the jockey intent was brilliant on that race. It didn't scream that Laura Light loved the mile and eight distance. It seemed like that was the kind of the edge of her wheelhouse um, in terms of distance limitations. It's always nice when you see a favorite have, whether it's a pace problem or a distance or surface problem. That those are probably the three main reasons that you see a favorite lose. Uh, what did you do from a wagering standpoint in this race? Obviously, we're now uh, an, a, a race was in between these two. Obviously, from the first race we talked about. Yeah, so the way my bankroll went, I, I missed a couple of things early. I hit the trifecta with Red King and United to Originaire. So I basically got my bankroll close to where I started. Uh, we had a really big trip no play in the race between those two on, on number eight, Kershaw. So I, I made a big wager on Kershaw um, and basically lost half of where I was. This race, I really didn't want to play, but felt because of the prices and the fact that I wasn't in love with Laura's light at all and, and didn't plan on using her. Mm-hmm. I felt the need to at least put a few hundred dollars in the race and see if I could catch a price since everyone was kind of a nice value in the race. So I, I keyed Guillotty. Uh, I bet Guillotty to win, and I played it in exacta boxes with the two Euros, uh, as well as a, a saver exacta with Warren Showtime, just because, I, like you said, it was at the end of the day, it was still too hard to ignore Mike Smith. I mean, I figured she could still run second to... Uh, to Guillotine, there's no reason they couldn't run you know, right together again like they did in their previous start. For me, it actually was Warren Showtime. Like we had said, the Mike Smith play was big. For me, I love Craig Lewis in these turf races. Obviously, people who, you know, Andy certainly for one does not like the, the stats down below at the page, but I'll read them off. Uh, 22% turf with a $5 ROI, $3 plus ROI in routes, and he's 20% as well. So this is just something that for a guy who's, you know, 15%, only 9% at the meet. This is a spot where I think he excel. Maybe not at this class level, but when you have a horse like this and Mike jumps on, to me it was just too many positives. Would have liked the price to have been a little bit higher. But let's see who wins this grade one Delmar Oaks right now. They're off in the Delmar Oaks. Laura's light broke very well. Aqua Seaform shame goes with her. It's these two to make the early pace here. And that it's Warren Showtime, parkour to the outside, and down toward the inside is Carpe Vinum, who's away running in fifth position. Break of another two to Red Lark, that it's Geeti to the outside. Another two lengths back, and Miss Extra is down toward the inside of Neige Blanche, and then California Kook at the back of the pack. So it's Laura's Light who waits no longer here under Abel City O, and Laura's Light is going to take the lead and open up the lead by a length and a half. Parkour is second on the outside. Aquasiform Shame is third. It went 24.26 for the first quarter mile. Then Warren Showtime on the outside. Carpe Venom is fifth and racing five lengths off the lead. Two back to Red Lark. Geeti is next on the outside by two and a half. And then Neige Blanche and Miss Extra. California Kook at the back of the pack. 48.14 was the half mile for Laura's Light, who leads the field up the back stretch in front by a length and a half to Parkour in second. Aqua Seaform Shame third on the inside. Warren Showtime is fourth alongside of her. And then it's Carpe Venom in behind them. Red Lark to the outside. Miss Extra saving all the ground. She's got seven lengths to make up. Neige Blanche is alongside of her. Geeti's out there three wide. And California Kook around the far turn. Laura's Light is the one to beat. Warren Showtime. Up into second. She's a length behind as they come to the top of the stretch. Red Lark is third. Parkour is fourth. Here's Warren Showtime to the front. Taking over the lead here. Red Lark's going to run with her. Laura's Light has given way. The Neige Blanche and California Kook flying from the back of the pack, but it's Red Lark. Red Lark and the Delmar Oaks over California Kook. 
And one horse neither of us talked about. The number seven Red Lark wins the race, paying forty twenty with an eighty seven buyer. When I looked back at this race, I just think I, I missed a few things. What about you, Tyler? <laughs> I think that my initial analysis from the night before of my handicapping was right. It was a very, very tough race. Yeah. And I really didn't have a good grasp of what was going on. <laughs> the only thing I can say with confidence is that my gut instinct that Laura's Light didn't want the distance was correct. And that, that's always nice when you can see that. Obviously, she finished off the board. And when it's such a low price under 2-1, to one, this is one that the public loves to latch on to. Uh, the other Peter Miller, as I alluded to, actually ended up running second at 27-1. to one. The winner, uh, Red Lark. Ryan McCarthy on the End of the Bit podcast talked about this horse, and I listened to it right before this podcast just to kind of hear what his ideas were. And his thought were the two-back race in the Wilshire against Older just to run second to a horse like Toinette. And to run, you know, third with a somewhat troubled trip in that last just made this horse excellent value at 12-1. to 1. I feel like for me, when I was beginning a handicapper, I never really paid attention to the, with, when you have a three-year-old if they had that three-plus next to the class. And I feel like now that I'm getting older and talking to more guys like you and Ryan and Sean Alvarez, I, I focus a lot more on age stuff when it comes to these later, you know, now we're getting into Breeders' Cup. You know, obviously, if Derby was where it was supposed to be this year and not where it is now, I start looking at age a lot more. Yeah, I mean, obviously, earlier in the year, in the springtime, anytime you have a three-year-old running against older, um, typically isn't the best bet. I mean, they've got to be a really special three-year-old, to, or it's got to be a really crummy class of older horses, <laughs> yeah. we'll say, um, to put it politely. In terms of the the fact that Red Lark ran against Older in the in the Great Three Wilshire at Sanita closing weekend. Twinette obviously is a sensational filly for, for Drysdale. I didn't think as much of it only because it was a five horse field and the show finisher is a filly named Purell, who's trained by Peter Miller, actually came back and won on Sunday. And Curell is, while she's a nice filly, she's an optional claiming forty, you know, sixty two, five, eighty, maybe one of these days will win a a small minor stakes race, you know, sprinting at five furlongs. She's not a, a, a two-turn type of runner. And so I just didn't put as much stock into that race. Um, what doesn't show up in the PPs is the horse that finished last in the race was Keeper of the Stars. Mm-hmm. And Keeper of the Stars is a big favorite with, with Toinette. And obviously she bounced in that race. And the fact that, that Keeper of the Stars ran so poorly and that the field was so short and Toinette just rolled over that field I kind of felt like anybody could have, could have run second, so I just didn't put too much credence into that race. Let's talk about. I guess it. I should have though. But I thought I had a bigger profit. Hey, <laughs> let's talk about your top pick, uh, Giddy, off the board. Obviously, Warren Showtime. They kind of had that same trip. Did Mike make the difference, or do you think that it was just a rougher trip this time out for Giddy? No, I thought I thought Mike made a difference on Warren Showtime and rode the race kind of the way Warren Showtime wants to run. Giddy always has a typical running style. This was part of my hesitation, even though I was I bet her, but I got to admit I wasn't as confident with her, and that's why I made the bet smaller than I did on some of the other bets on this card, was the fact that she's constantly always a little bit rank on the backstretch. And I have a note from the previous race on Giddy where I said that Giddy and the jock had a minor disagreement on the backstretch about when go time was. And you saw that again on Saturday's performance where – She's pulling into the first turn. She's tugging her way down the backstretch, and, and the jock's fighting with her. And she always puts in a kick, but depending on how much energy she wastes 
wanting to go on the backstretch seems to flatten out that late kick. And I don't know what you do to correct that. Typically in, in male horses, they'll geld them. That's, you know, you'll see a first time gelding when you see a horse that's constantly pulling a rank. Mm-hmm. Obviously you can't quite do the same thing with a filly, but I don't know what you do to, to correct that. And maybe it's, it's a distance change. Maybe a mile and eighth is too far. Maybe she's better at a mile. Uh, maybe there's a way Leonard Power can get more speed into her and kind of harness that, you know, kind of compromise the rankness with, uh, you know, a little bit more forwardly placed, take a little bit of late kick away by being close to early on. I'm not sure. It's a tricky one because she has talent. But until she corrects that, that problem of being unable to relax on the backstretch, she's going to keep running the same type of race over and over again. Obviously, uh, Hernandez, same uh, another jockey coming down from Golden Gate trying to follow Abel Cedillo in that route. Is it just another chance to maybe, you said he was having trouble with her last race, now same problem this time. Is it maybe just a different jockey? Maybe they just don't fit well together? I mean, it can definitely be something like that. It's always a possibility, except for the fact that I've seen her do it with Brees in okay. the previous two races. I actually mm-hmm. know her pretty well, um, just following the Southern California circuit. And the the first race that I really remember her performance from was the optional claiming 80, not one of the one that she won at the Bing Crosby meet last, uh, last November. Because she was off slow, she missed the break, and she gave Drayden Van Dyke all he could handle down the backstretch. I mean, he was water skiing <laughs> on her. And he finally, at, at the at the race bowl, said, forget it. And he just let her go. And she looped the field, and she made the front, and she got tired, but she did hang on. And so that's just kind of her natural running style, if you want to call it that. And that's kind of why I'm a little bit disappointed that she's becoming more seasoned into her three-year-old campaign, that she hasn't corrected that yet. So I don't know if it's a maturity thing. I don't really think it's a jockey tactic or a jockey change that's needed. Um, I feel like maybe there's something that they can do training-wise, or perhaps. And I think that, that she's probably a filly that's frustrated the barn because they know that she has all the talent in the world mm-hmm. to win a race like this. But she mentally hasn't been able to put it together. Last question. And so I guess we'll, we'll have to see what happens moving forward. 100%. Last question for this race. Any horses you want to bet back? when you see a horse pay $40 in the second horse, uh, 27 to one, um, you know, not really only okay. because I think that these, these three-year-old Philly races are, especially the greatest stakes caliber. It depends so much on the distance. So yep. today was obviously a, a mile and an eighth. You know, they could come back. All of these Phillies could come back and run at a mile, um, or they even stretch out to a mile and a quarter. Then they might go to the I'm trying to think is it the Rodeo drive, the great one Rodeo drive in, uh, they need a championship meet mm-hmm. where these Phillies go to next. So I think the distance makes a, uh, you know, is a big deal for some of these. So I'd be surprised to see Laura's light go to that race after a race like she ran in the, in the mm-hmm. Delmar Oaks here. But I think each race for this, for this class of horses, I think needs to be kind of taken on its own. Obviously we'll, we'll have trip notes for that Rodeo drive stakes. And, you know, we'll see if there's something that you know wasn't obvious the first time through, look at it with fresh eyes. But as of right now, there's not anybody that I was overly excited about. I don't think Red Lark all of a sudden is at the top of the division on the West Coast because she took down this race and pulled mm-hmm. off the upset. I think it was more happenstance than anything else. You hear that? Just now that we need to look forward to Santa Anita to see who can win out of this three-year-old Phillies division. Let's jump into the last race. Race 11 It is an optional 40N1X going 101.16 miles out of the turf shoot. What would you like here, Tyler? I know you had a big bet in this race for the uh, Daily Golf Contest. I did. My number one play in the race was uh, number five, Salvador Mundy. 
And this was a horse that I was waiting to run all day. I actually, I remembered it because I gave it out as a selection on the Race Day Las Vegas show mm-hmm. uh, as well, you know, a couple of weeks ago, earlier in the meet. And this was a nightmare trip. This is one of the few times, I think this whole meet, that Umberto sat the pocket trip and wasn't able to get out of it <laughs> in time. And remembering that trip before I had even written the trip notes for it, was I was anticipating in my head, I'm thinking, okay, this horse is probably going to be five to two. When I saw the form come out and I saw that the comment in the PPs was angled out in the stretch, surged. <laughs> I went, was my memory that bad? Do I not recall what that trip was? Right. It's like, oh, that, that's not the race that I remember. And so writing the trip notes, and I'll just read for the, for the listeners what our trip note was. Uh, we wrote bet down off the morning line at five to one because he actually went off at two to one in this race secured an ideal pocket tracking trip down the backstretch inside of the common rival in the race. It was number two, Tiberius Mercurius on the far turn is when this trip became a nightmare was shuffled with nowhere to go past the three eighths pole. The entire field was looping the early pace setters three, four, five, and six wide. You could see Umberto was frantically looking to get off the rail into the clear, but he was hemmed in. He angled three wide around the two tired leaders who started backing up through the field but was still stuck behind a wall of three horses with two rivals immediately to his outside. Keep in mind, this was only a field of eight. This is really unlucky now that he's got seven horses around him <laughs> and he hasn't been able to get in the clear yet. Uh, he angled back to the rail at the eighth pole when he found an opening. At the 16th pole, he tried to shoot a gap between the winner and Tiberius Mercurius. The winner tightened it up by drifting in. And if I just may say so, this is going to be a little bit of a tangent. On Friday in the first race, where there was that disqualification of the show finisher and the mm-hmm. worst DQ of all time, at Delmar, this horse drifted in far more than that horse did on Friday's first race, but I digress. <laughs> uh, anyway, the, the, the leader drifted in and was forced and forced uh, Umberto to check and then dive back to the rail. He surged up and just missed. It was an incredibly unlucky trip. He was obviously best in here, better than looked. No idea how the PP comments didn't say anything about it. Incredibly misleading. Uh, With I mean- that being said... That was all I needed to know from a handicapping standpoint that this was going to be my big bet in the contest, A, and that this was a no doubt a perfect and beautiful trip note um, for our website and what we're hoping to identify, which is a PP comment like this that is nowhere near accurate uh, to what actually transpired in the race. And the horse took pretty much no money, still 9-2 to two goes off at. Let's talk about the favorite, Shadow Sphinx. This is a horse that I just think – if you're a form handicapper, this is just one that, to me, uh, comes off the long layoff, wins a race, under 2-1, to one, super solid fractions. It's always nice when you see a horse close to her on the lead running in red fractions. Then another long layoff. That, to me, just screamed owie or ouchie. And just that the, they didn't really know what they were going to have with the horse. And it's hard enough to pick the winner in a race, let alone when you have questions and the horse is going to be a short price. This one was another one that was under two to one. Just for me, it just seemed like another race where you were trying to find a different horse. And like the number two, Tiberius Mercurius, loved, seemed to love underneath. Uh, a horse on the outside I was a little bit interested in, but then ended up getting off was uh, Navy Arm Guard. Just because I don't know about you, but how do you feel about like when you see a horse as the only horse in for a claiming price in this type of race? I don't mind it per se. Um, so when it comes to Navy Armguard, the fact that it was in for a tag um, didn't really bother me because for all we know, I mean, 
we have the PPs only show back to the April 13th. It might have already broken the condition. Mm-hmm. So maybe it had to be in for a tag because it was a five-time winner. Yeah. Um, I don't know that for a fact, but certainly could have been. I know it won on the main track for a non-winner of two other than, which would be that it's over-conditioned and has to be in for a tag. Uh, what concerned me more, what, what made me not like Navy Arm Guard very much, was just the fact that it was coming from, from Tampa Bay Downs. Um, you know, shipping it. Not that Tampa Bay Downs always can't have success, but breaking from the 13 hole in this race, uh, didn't seem like the closing fractions were very good or fast enough to compete in here, I thought. Um, going back to what you said earlier about Shadow Sphinx, the, the favorite in here, I thought the exact same thing. I thought that was a very vulnerable favorite in here when comparing the, the trips between Salvador Mundy's last race and Shadow Sphinx. I didn't even think it was close. Uh, Shadow Sphinx, the, the PP's got it right. I mean, it, was, it tracked the early leader. You know, while she raced on her own, she she inched up around the far turn, took over at the top of the lane, and she held nicely. I mean, it was a nice run off the layoff, but it was a perfect trip. She got everything her own way. Um, figured with Pratt that she'd get bet, or that he'd get bet, rather. Uh, I didn't think that there was really much of a comparison because Salvador Mundy, who ran at the end of that San to meet as well, visually and horse comfort-wise, was really, really impressive if you look at our previous trip note. Then you factor in the trouble trip last time when he was obviously best. Now we've got a horse who is in very, very sharp form coming up against a favorite whose form is questionable at best, and now it's going off, coming off another layoff. When I saw the odds board pop up that you know Shadow thinks was the favorite <laughs> you... and Salvador Money was still sitting at 3-1, to one, I, I began to think that I was reading the form in a, in a different language. I mean, it, it made no sense to me. And the, the crazy thing about the race in terms of the way the, the top board read, is that Salvador Mundy was 3-1 to one in the gate and then went to 9-2 to two on the far turn, mm-hmm. and Shadow Sphinx got hit from 5-2 to two to 8-5, to five, the final click, which meant somebody really dumped in the money Yeah, that final flash and really liked Shadow Sphinx, which I thought was really, really um, interesting given all the reasons that you and I just stated. After that in this race, a couple of things just from a, a handicapping standpoint, and in, Part of the reason why I brought up the blinkers off angle is one of my favorite handicapping angles is there's actually a good example of this in this last race. And that was the number 12 horse knee deep in snow. Mm-hmm. So if you look at knee deep in snow's race, that's typically a horse that, you know, shows, you know, is, is forwardly placed, you know, has been on the lead a couple of times, you know, gone wire to wire once, but seems to lack finish for the most part, except for that June 6th race, which in and, in and of itself is a very difficult race to believe in because it's a hand-time race. They went 114 and 2 is the final time. I mean, they were flying that day. He went 108 flat for three quarters. And nobody out of that race has come back to do anything at the Del Mar meet, which makes me think that the hand time was probably off. <laughs> it just raises, you know, raised my eyebrow thinking that a little bit off. But with that being said, the blinkers off still applied a horse that was lacking finish and is now stretching out in distance, which I think is a very, very powerful angle. The question of course was how far to stretch out to mile to 16th, maybe a little bit far, but in terms of uh, a long shot, look, something that tournament players are always looking for, for something that is a little bit of, of an oddball horse, of, we'll call it a fuzzy logic is the, the term that I like to use. Mm-hmm. That certainly fit the mold of somebody like that. Um, Outside of that in this race, the other horse that I was looking at a lot to play with Salvador Mundi was the number six horse, Colosi. And the reason for that is Colosi was another trip no play. Just had a horrendous trip in which he was buried in traffic for most of the journey. 
um, had nowhere to go at the top of the stretch. Jockey was looking, looking, looking for a seam. Couldn't find it. It was just past the eighth pole that he did find a seam to the rail, and he dove to it, and he, with a burst was past four rivals. The minute he got past those four rivals, now he was stuck again. And so he just wrapped up. It was a better-than-much performance. He actually got DQ'd for reasons that, again, I can't explain on the tape because he, <laughs> he he didn't really do anything. I mean, he came over on two horses that were already done. They were, And he was at least a length clear when he did so. Those jockeys just kind of reacted, I think, because of the burst of speed. They weren't expecting it. They kind of thought everybody was jogging around them, and that wasn't the case. So I think they sold that inquiry a little bit. But Colosi made a lot of sense second-time blinkers. Again, not for speed, per se, just for, I think, focus is what I was thinking, combined with that trip. So I was looking at that race with Salvador Mundy and then Keen Exactos um, with Colosi and, and Knee Deep in Snow, as well as trifectas, and I, I spread out of the race. But Salvador Mundy was the key for me. For me, looking at this race, I just I knew I didn't like the favorite. Uh, Tiberius Mercurius loves to finish underneath, so I was going to play him underneath in Exactus. My only play was Salvador Mundi, and, and what made it even better was how you guys put out, you know, that one free trip note every day. I always check it. I'm always looking to see, like, what tracks you, what track you guys are at. And I said, okay, let me look at it. And I saw 3-1. to one. I was kind of disappointed. But like you said, coming around the far turn at 9-2, to two, it was just something of, of absolute bliss. Let's see if Salvatore Mundi can get it done in the nightcap for me and Tyler right now. They're off. Shadow Sphinx came out well. Salvatore Mundi with some early foot two and farther out are Navy Armed Guard and Knee Deep in Snow who are up to challenge for the front with Bold Endeavor from the rail. So now it's going to be Bold Endeavor to the front. Shadow Sphinx a little bit hard to hold there second. And then it's Knee Deep in Snow running in third. Navy Armed Guard follows in fourth. Salvatore Mundi tucks in fifth. Tiberius Mercurius is in behind them. Racing about five lengths off the lead and just ahead of a good report. Then Ostini, 3 a.m., a length and a half back to a three-wide M-Town gem was going up outside of horses. Colosi is down toward the inside. Desmond Doss is the trailer. 23.9 was the quarter up the back stretch. And it is Bold Endeavor on top, the leader by a half a length. To Shadow Sphinx on the outside, a hard-held second. And then it's Salvatore Mundi running in third of the inside. Needy in Snow is fourth. Navy Armed Guard fifth on the outside of Tiberius Mercurius. And of good report, 3 a.m. is next after a 48.19 half mile. They race for the far turn, and Shadow Sphinx has taken over the lead here. Opening up the lead by a length, Salvatore Mundi, though, on the move in second. And then it's knee-deep in snow in third. Navy armed guard fourth on the inside. Of good report, Tiberius Mercurius is next. Salvatore Mundi has taken the lead as they come to the top of the stretch. Opens up the lead by four with a furlong to run. Knee deep in snow is next. Then comes Navy armed guard toward the inside, but it's Salvatore Mundi and Umberto Rispoli under the wire by four. And the number five, Salvatore Mundi does get it done, paying a nice 11.20 with an 88 buyer. It's always nice when the odds go the opposite way that we're used to seeing it when we're on a horse, isn't it, Tyler? It's like a miracle. <laughs> I mean, it's a it happens like once a year. <laughs> Unbelievable that happened that way. I mean, Salvador Money didn't just win that race. I mean, he destroyed that field. Mm -hmm. And again, Rispoli with that patented pocket trip. <laughs> and that's something that, like, we've gone over three turf routes. Obviously, uh, the number one thing that you can really take out of it is you don't want to be wide. You do want to be in the pocket. And for how many people just yell at jockeys for being stuck in the pocket too long, I would take 
a hundred pocket rides over being, you know, wide and having to watch the horse just never get there. And you knowing it for like the last half of the race, like, oh, he's just never going to get there. He's going to make the run. He's going to make me want to believe, but just he's going to flatten out like they always do when they have to be wide on both turns compared to saving ground. I don't think there's any worse trip on the surf course than the uncovered three, four wide trips throughout. <laughs> you almost always end up flat in the lane. And I guess the only trip that's worse is the backstretch blitz move. Yeah. To get from the back of the pack to within a length of the lead. Because then you're always flat by the quarter pole and you have that sinking feeling as you're watching that move, knowing that was 100% the wrong move. So, yeah, those are the, I agree with you. Taking the pocket trip is uh, probably, if you're, if you're not going to be on the front end, which I always love to be on the front end myself, I. I don't know why I just get more satisfaction going wire to wire. I just, I feel better. <laughs> it's one of those weird, uh, you know, handicapping things in horse racing. It's just, I love going wire to wire. I love being on a, on a lone front runner, but yeah, the, the pocket trip on the grass is probably, uh, my second favorite place to be. Salvatore Mundy, uh, when he, when he was a two year old, ended up, uh, breaking the maiden first time out was third by a head in the grade three bourbon. It's just a horse that you just see now. We'll try and go up to that 62 and two X. And then maybe possibly we'll see him in a stake, a little bit down the road? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, I really wouldn't be surprised. Again, this is Philip Diamato. I mean, this is this goes back to what we were talking about with Red King mm-hmm. um, earlier on. This is the same kind of move. He could go to, uh, you know, a, a graded stakes race, you know, a marathon distance. I don't think Salvador Monday needs to go a mile or a mile 16th. I think he could, if he wants to, he could stretch him out. I think this one, you know, could go mile and three if he wanted to, you know, something like that. So it'll be really interesting to see what he does. And if there's even a race for him at the end of the Delmar meet here on closing weekend, Labor Day weekend, I wouldn't be surprised if Philip wheels him right back because right now he is in very, very sharp form. I have one last question for you on this podcast. I didn't prep you for it. Obviously, the uh, Pacific Classic race, maximum security, gets it done again. Where would you rank him in the Breeders' Cup Classic rankings? Would you rank him ahead or below of Tis the Law? Ah. That's a great question. Um, I'd say below right now. Okay. And the reason for that is I don't think that Pacific Classic field was the greatest field of all time. Uh, I still have question marks on Max just because he got everything his own way. I guess if you had to, if I had the opportunity to be a, a reporter at Delmar, I'd have a couple questions. My first question would would be to victor espinoza and ask why he took midcourt off the pace <laughs> and just completed the lead in maximum security my next question would be to the two stewards that dq that horse on friday i'd want to know what went into that thought process there help me understand and and support you guys <laughs> so uh i think that while max obviously is probably more talented than we gave him credit for since he has left the service barn i think we were all incredibly skeptical based on all the information that's available to us um, of what's played out between the ugly black eye that that service and, and Navarro gave our sport. Mm-hmm. With that being said, I still don't know shipping, um, you know, two Keelan for the Breeders' Cup. He's not going to get his own way. I think he back is a grinder. He's game. His law right now is obviously only a three-year-old hasn't raced against older. I think I put both of them below Tom Tom right now myself. I mean, I thought it was Tom Tom making a mess of the break. In his, in his race at Saratoga, and I'm blinking on what the name of that race was, uh, I think he's better than both. I, I, te- I tend to agree with you on that aspect. I just think that those two are kind of like second and third right now. I think Tom Tatai, for people who want to make him lower on the th- on their classic rankings, quote-unquote, I think it's impossible for you to do that when 
and every single time a horse misses the break, you're willing to give him a second chance. But now in these rankings, you're not because he just missed the break one time. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, it's so silly. And again, that's part of what I guess makes for, uh, you know, for conjecture and, and makes the, the podcast and the different radio shows fun is analyzing and trying to predict that. It's just like what they do in sports when, you know, the Lakers, you know, the Clippers just lost the, game four and all of a sudden now Dallas is a threat and the Clippers are done. You know, LeBron lost game one for the Lakers and now Portland is going to sweep the Lakers. And it's just the narrative changes every day after every race. So I think it's important not to overreact one way or the other. And, and to remember that still at the end of the day, whoever's going to win that British plastic race, they're going to need a good trip. They're going to need a clean trip, a clean break. You know, I don't care how good Tom Payton is. He misses the break in the British plastic. He won't win the race. Mm-hmm. We can say he's better than we want. But you got to prove it, and you got to have things go your way. Um, same thing for Max. If he you know gets out there, or he gets stuck in traffic, and you know he maybe is better than both of them. He gets stuck in traffic, and he doesn't win the race. How do we say he's better? We can think he's better, but we don't know. And that's the beauty of our sport, and that anybody can win on any given day. That is all the time we have for today. I want to thank my special guest, Tyler Hoffman. Tyler, where can people find you on social media? And also, give us a rundown on what you guys have cooking over there at Trip No Pros. Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at TyHoffman6. That's T-Y-H-O-F-F-M-A-N, the number six. You can find my partner, Benny Southstreet. He's a, he's a fun follower. He's a character out there. and uh, you, can take, uh, you can find both of our, our work for Trip Note Pros at tripnotepros.com. We're doing... Trip notes for Saratoga and Del Mar through Labor Day weekend, which is closing day for both of those circuits. Uh, after that, we'll transition into uh, Belmont and Sanita, and we'll probably be looking to pick up a third track as well, and we'll continue to grow the product, and we'd like to thank everybody for, for their support so far since we launched uh, right at the beginning of the summer. Appreciate and thank you for having me, Smith. I really appreciate it. Hey, man, it was a blast. I think this might be my longest podcast ever. Love chatting the race with you, always down to whenever you are as well. Of course. Thank you so much. Another big thank you to all the great fans out there for listening to Redboard Rewind and everything else on the In The Money Media Network. And also for my special guest, Tyler Hoffman. If any of you guys have an idea for someone to have on Redboard Rewind, please don't be afraid to reach out to me at my Twitter handle, at Handy underscore Capper. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's president is Peter Thomas Forntail. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. And our In The Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbuehl, and we will see you next time. Nowhere to hide from my-